one thing I guess you could say is that also he didn't like gossiping about any of the people he worked with. And I think that won people over, people like Garbo, who was pretty suspicious of publicity. The fact that she could trust him meant a lot. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. He was known for making stars, Garbo, Gable, Crawford. And he made films we all remember, like The Yearling and National Velvet. But we don't really know much about him. In this episode, I talked to Gwenda Young, author of Clarence Brown, Hollywood's Forgotten Master. Make sure you don't get left behind at the turn like a thoroughbred up against the velvet. Subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And if you have a chance, leave us a rating and review at iTunes to help others discover us too. Thanks. began, there has been none to equal conquest, costliest production ever made, and stirring beyond words. A crown would not be unbecoming on that lovely head. I want no other crown than your loving me. There, Ruth, there's the final revision on Sadie McKee. Congratulations, Miss Delmont. I think Sadie McKee is your finest story. Let me tell you this. I do what I like because I like it. But I never sold myself for money. Shut up! The world you live in isn't the world of facts and figures. It's a world of dreams. Maybe that's what I like about you, Irene. You're so beautifully phony. And maybe you're wrong, my darling. Maybe we two cheap people with our cheap lives. Maybe we're the only ones in this crazy world who are real. Can't help it, Father. I'd sooner have that horse happy than go to heaven. We promise you the thrill of your movie-going experience in the running of the Grand National. American film history is still shaped by lists of who's in and who's out, going back to the 50s and 60s. As William K. Everson observed of this, perhaps even more irksome than being an underrated director or neglected director is the fate of the director who is acknowledged casually as a craftsman, and thereafter so taken for granted that his art is rarely discussed at all. That's the case with Clarence Brown who had a long career as a top director at MGM, the most corporate of studios, a specialist in launching female stars, who ended his life rich and conservative. All counts against him among critics. But a new book, Clarence Brown, Hollywood's Forgotten Master, from the University of Kentucky Press, puts flesh on the bones of that narrative to reveal a more personal and nuanced director who knew how to fight the front office for what he believed in. 
It's by Dr. Gwenda Young, who teaches film studies at University College Cork in Ireland. I started by asking her what got her interested in telling Clarence Brown's story. So I initially started out um, when I did a PhD. I did my PhD on Jacques Turner, uh, who did all those low-budget horror films with Val Luton in the 1940s, The Cat People and I Walked with a Zombie. And I loved his stuff. And when I was researching him, I came across his dad, who's Maurice Turner, who was a big film director in, in the 1910s in America and later on in France. And his um, Maurice Turner kind of led me then to Clarence Brown because Clarence Brown was Maurice's apprentice. And so there was a kind of a six degrees of separation thing uh, going on. And I dug into, after I finished my PhD, I dug into uh, Clarence Brown's work and realized that he was responsible for at least two films that completely scarred me during childhood, uh, which two films I saw obviously on television um, in the 1980s. Because um, The Yearling. The Yearling was the one that scarred me. And then the other one was, which made me more crazy about animals was The National Velvet. So it, it was a strange thing. I remembered those films very vividly, maybe two or three films from my childhood that I really remembered. And then years and years later, I kind of made the connection. So then I looked up Clarence Brown and like nobody had written anything much about him other than, you know, there were some articles and there was obviously um, Kevin Brown had written a, a bit on, on his silent era. But it was weird because he was this big director and nobody had written a book about him yet. So that's how it got started. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Turner first off because I just watched Stars in My Crown the other night. Oh. And oh. it's interesting. I mean, it's you talk in the book about there being a little bit of sibling rivalry between Jacques Turner and Brown as, as a sort of surrogate son for Maurice. Yeah, um, yeah. And Stars in My Crown uh, has Juano Hernandez as mm -hmm. a guy who's about to get lynched, which yeah. he had just played for Clarence Brown in Intruder in the Dust. Uh, you know, pretty obvious case of a guy taking his own crack at the same material. And I think Clarence Brown actually would have been really suited as well to Stars in My Crown, actually. You know, in one way, you'd almost look at that film and think it might be a Clarence Brown film because it's got that kind of small town America, rural, um, the community, all of that. And yet it has the dark elements that you often get in Jacques Turner's work, you know, that kind of idea that something underneath the surface, there's something lurking. Um, so there's definitely there was a there was a kind of a rivalry all right between, I guess, I think Jacques Turner in particular felt that his father has had more love for, for for Clarence Brown than he had for himself. Um, by all accounts, from what I understand, Maurice Turner was a pretty tough guy, uh, kind of quite a cold character and p very much a perfectionist. And maybe Jacques felt he was a bit in his shadow and Clarence was a little bit older as well. So there would have been, you know, he was he was kind of starting out with with Maurice Turner at a time when Maurice was very much a major player in the American film industry. And, and Jacques came along kind of later on and uh, he actually worked for Clarence Brown in the 1920s. Um, he was given a part in a, a film called The Trail of 98. Um, and I think it, there was a strange kind of vibe. I don't get the sense they particularly liked each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting, those connections, though, because Juan Hernandez is this incredible actor who I just think is astonishing in... Uh, intruding the dust and yet then you see him in, in Stars of My Crown which is a very different type of role 
he's he's very versatile. In other words, there's, there's a there's a lot of complexity in his performances. I think, and both those films are really interesting in terms of how they map out um, community, but also racial relations in in America in the 1940s. Um, and I know the Stars of My Crown is kind of set earlier than that, but you know it has a lot of contemporary parallels. Well, let's talk. Yeah, I mean, we've kind of hinted now at uh, Brown's background. So he he was from Tennessee, uh, originally trained as an engineer, you say, which seems to help him a lot in Hollywood in that he he would approach things from a technical standpoint a lot of times. Um, and then, but kind of drifted from whatever engineering career he might have had. He, he seemed to get the movie bug. And yeah. that brings him to Maurice Turner by the late teens. Yeah, exactly. He He's actually, he is kind of a guy from the South, but he's born in Massachusetts, in Clinton, Massachusetts. And in many ways, he doesn't, he had a bit of memories of that because he left when he was a child. Um, but he brought that memory of small town New England life into uh, later films like the adaptation he made with Eugene O'Neill's play, uh, Our Wilderness. Um, but he was essentially raised in Knoxville, Tennessee, which in itself was an interesting city uh, in terms of race and racial um, racial relations. Uh, it was quite an interesting city. And yeah, he trained. He was a bit of a I guess he was a bit of a kind of child prodigy prodigy because he started off as a juvenile entertainer. Uh, he used to do uh, uh, orations and songs and so on uh, in, in, I think, church groups and so on. And then he went into um, he graduated he, he went into university at the age of fifteen, and by the time he was nineteen, he had a double degree in engineering from the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. Um, so he he was mad about machines. He was crazy about. He wrote a, a dissertation on um, how to achieve a more uh, efficient way uh, of running the power plant that his father worked for. Uh, the, the the mills in, in, in Knoxville. Um, he then went into actually doing car dealerships. And so he had a bit of a, a career there as a car. He was crazy about machines anyway, but he was crazy about cars and planes were his big passion aside from movies. And it brought him eventually after he kind of went around the South a little bit. He was in Alabama for a while. Uh, he eventually says that he kind of stumbled on movies um, on his lunch break. Uh, from the car dealership and he kind of got the bug and went off to follow his dreams by he found out that you know a lot of the movies were being shot up in Fort Lee in New, in New Jersey and he, he traveled up there and he tells the story that he was kind of on the on the, the boat over and uh, on the ferry over and he, he overheard somebody saying oh they're shooting something in this location and he just stumbled along and kind of walked off into the middle of a, of a shoot um, and you know the story goes that, that Maurice kind of yelled at him to go back and stand at the sidelines and then eventually wanted to find out who this buffoon was that came over and, and spoiled his, his shot and uh, I think Clarence kind of sold himself on the idea that you know his Maurice's previous apprentice hadn't worked out and he had been an experienced person and why not just take a chance and just employ somebody who doesn't know anything and, and see how it goes. Um, so yeah, his his passion for machines was there and it, it, he was fascinated with how you make a film and how the camera works and how you edit a film. He was very much involved in that throughout his career. But he also, when he was working with Maurice, he was actually very diplomatic compared to Maurice with his actors. Um, he was often there to soothe the actors' egos when, when Maurice used to bowl them out. 
um, that. So he, he had kind of two things to his personality. He had this kind of practical, pragmatic approach, and yet he also had a kind of more sensitive side of, um, you, you know, understanding the, the mentality of actors, that they're not just cattle to be moved around the set, as it were, you know. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. It kind of reminded me a little bit about what people say about Buster Keaton, that he was just fascinated with the camera as a device and all the things that you could do with it. And yet he very much becomes somebody known for skillful handling of actresses in particular, as someone who could make stars out of upcoming actresses. Yeah, it's interesting. The um, A lot of the early directors, you know, a lot of them did come from engineering backgrounds or were kind of fascinated with the machine itself. Um you know, as you mentioned, Buster Keaton being one, Alan Dwan, who's this incredible career for years, he's still making films into the late 50s. Um, but he also started out as an engineer. So there is something of that, that, that um, fascination with, I guess it was a pretty new technology, really, when you think about it. It's, what, 20, 20 years old by the time they come into it. Um, so there's that. But yes, there's also an ability to handle people. And I guess you could say he's got a bit of a businessman approach as well that he he understands if you're going to upset all the actors you're not going to get a performance from them and you know that's going to lose money and i guess that's also why for a long time he was the the golden-haired boy in in uh, mgm studios he he understood the asset that, that actors were the other the other interesting part of his his career early at this point is that he seems to take a liking to shooting on location um, yeah. which apparently Turner did not care for. And yeah. they shared directing credit on Last of the Mohicans. And you argue that basically that given how much of it is outdoors, that it really may be more brown than Turner. Yeah, it, it's quite hard to, to deduce exactly because there's a lot of different accounts of, of people who, who have been, were on the set. I mean, there's a cameraman that was on the set that has, has indicated one thing about how much Turner directed it and how much directed but it does seem the case that there was some sort of accident or, or Turner got sick and he gave over the direction for mainly for the the, the scenes up up in um, Yosemite and and uh, that area he gave over the directions to to um, Clarence Brown um, and certainly Clarence seems to have done a lot of the exteriors um, and it did he loved shooting on location, and yet he didn't always shoot on location. And one of the, I guess, the, the, the negative things about working in MGM in the 30s was they were discouraged from going too much out on location, you know. Um, and he found that a bit stifling. Uh, his, his best work is stuff that he's gone out onto a location, like Intruder in the Dust or The Yearling, or, um, I mean, even to some extent, National Velvet, which is, is the back lot, but it also has some location work. Right. Out those kinds of films. There's a real feel for the landscape and, and the people in that landscape. In terms of him being, uh, you know, his reputation as a, as a director of actresses in particular, it seems like that kind of kicks in. Uh, let's see, counting quickly on IMDb, about his ninth or tenth movie, Smoldering Fires. Um with uh, Pauline Frederick, that that's where he first kind of... Well, well even before that, there's, there's two films that are not as well known. as Smoldering Fires has got a bit of a, a revival, and I think Kevin Brownlow's been really instrumental in that. It's an extraordinary film. But even before he directed that film with, with Pauline Frederick, he made two films. One of them is called The Signal Tower, which he made in late 1923, and it was released in 24. And then he made another film called Butterfly, um, and in those, the, the, the action is very much centered around women. Um, the Signal Tower is a kind of this 
this railroad movie. It's a beautiful film. It's really gorgeous uh, location work. But it has um, it features Virginia Valley, and she's a great, really subtle performance that she gives of a real sense of of, of revealing the emotional depth in this kind of generic story about you know a, a villain and uh, a husband and, and that kind of you know under threat, the family under threat. And then he also makes another film um, called. Uh, Butterfly with uh, Ruth Clifford, who was not a really well-known actress, but who later said that she had come to the the film not really wanting to make the film, and she was astonished at how uh, perceptive and sensitive he was about women and and their their mentalities and their kind of insecurities, um, and how patient he was as a director because she, she was not that experienced and she was felt she wasn't really relating to the character. But the one that really I guess stands out in the early part of his career, there well there are two the the smouldering fires as you mentioned. Uh, which stars Fred, uh, Pauline Frederick. And Pauline Frederick had a pretty important career, um, but she also had a, I think she had quite a turbulent private life, but she suffered from quite a lot of anxiety about her performances. And, and she was not sure that she could really deliver the performance. She'd been a little bit out of the loop. She'd been very successful in the early 20s, um, but she had kind of gone out of the loop a bit and, and she had to be really coaxed into coming in and performing um, Smoldering Fires. And what what they, what Brown does is he takes this, it's such a contemporary story in many ways about a, a woman who runs a business and is is an absolute t- titan of the, of the business world. And she's kind of ignored the romantic part of her life um, until she meets a man who is kind of challenging her authority and she falls in love and it's it's a May to December romance because he's much younger than her. Um, and then as, as it goes on, a triangle develops, as it were, between him, her and her younger sister. Um, and this triangle uh, dynamics of romantic relationships comes up in a lot of, of um, Clarence Brown's films. You can see it in, in, in many of the films of Garbo, um, but also you see it in that early work, um, Smouldering Fires. Uh, he, he seems to have been patient with actors um, to a certain extent. If he liked the actor, if he felt that they were worth, you know, sticking with, if he felt they were giving their all, he could be very, very patient. He could also be pretty impatient and harsh. Uh, and there are some stories in the book about that, about his, his attitude to um, some of the actors that he worked with. He had particular dislikes for some actors like Francho Tone. Um, but also, he he directs people like Pauline Frederick and Louise Dresser in in The Goose Woman, which comes out in 1925. And they are they really couldn't. I don't think they could beat those performances. They're fantastic performances, full of little touches, uh, of, and also little touches from from Clarence Brown. But you know, we always think of if we people remember Clarence Brown, they often think of him as Garbo's director. You know. But he made as many films with Joan Crawford and probably, in my opinion, anyway, the films he made in Joan Crawford's early career are the best films that she ever made. Um, and she also suffered, believe it or not, from anxiety and, uh, you know, she was shy in some ways, uh, wasn't that sure that she was a great actress. Um, and I think that he brought out the best in her. He, she was very fond of him, and she she always held him in huge esteem, along with George Cukor. Well, yeah, let's talk about The Goose Woman. I mean, this is an extraordinary film. You, you'd say close to being an art film for those times. Yeah. Um, based roughly on a tawdry true crime story, 
yes. but with a really fantastic performance by Louise Dresser, um, who, who I don't know, had she been in movies much before then? I'm not sure. She was in a lot of stage. Um, for, uh, she was a stage actress, and she would go on to be in another Clarence Brown film, The Eagle, and um, and also um, the Von Sternberg film, The, the Scarlet Empress. Um, so she, she went between stage, but I think she's mainly stage, um, and, and did some film work as well. Um, but, you know, she's, again, I guess one of the things that's extraordinary is that here we have, in the middle of, and this is what I talk about in the book, it, in the middle of the 1920s, where you have an American culture that celebrates youth, that celebrates beauty, that celebrates hygiene, which is a good thing. <laughs> um, you know, you have this film, which is all about an old woman. Um, and actually, I don't think Louise Dresser was that old. I think she was maybe in her early 40s when she made the film, but she's kind of dressed up in, a, in to look much older. And here is a woman who who does everything that we think is is repellent about femininity. If, if you know, a woman drinks too much, a woman who isn't clean, a woman who rejects her son, who doesn't show the natural mother love that she should. So it's it's an extraordinarily unusual film. I and mean, it's such an unusual film. It was based on a true story, very loosely based on a true story. Um, there was a, a murder in New Jersey, um, the Hall Mills murder. And it was really quite tawdry. It, it involved a, some, a Methodist minister, I think, and he had a mistress and a wife and, and whatever happened. Anyway, I don't think, I'm not sure it was completely solved. But uh, there was a witness in that who was a pig woman. So Brown uh, changed, the, the story was written up by Rex Beach, uh, the writer Rex Beach. But Brown changed it to um, a, a goose woman as opposed to a pig woman. Maybe it was <laughs> too grubby, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Um, and what what you have then is this uh, wonderfully sensitive and you know compassionate portrait of a woman who lives on the margins, and you know there's a lot of you might think there's a big distance between somebody like the slovenly goose woman of of the goose woman played by by Louise Dresser and the gorgeous Garbo, but in a lot of Garbo films she is a woman on the margins too or outcast in some way doesn't conform to societal rules. And um, I think you see that coming out in a lot of Brown's early work in, in films like the, the Goose Women and Smoldering Fires. Um, so it's a beautiful film because it has so many touches. We, we screened the film in Ireland um, a couple of years ago at a festival and we kind of were worried, you know, it's hard to know whether a silent film will play and people were captivated, captivated by the film. Um, we we were lucky because we had Carl Davis in in person doing it. Wow. Yeah, doing an accompaniment. So that was also captivating. But people came up to us afterwards and said, you know, they'd never, they didn't ever think they'd sit through a silent film. Um, they saw the little details, the lovely little, almost Hitchcockian details that you have in in the film, where trying to build up a sense of suspense and in in an interrogation scene. Brown cuts to a tap dripping slowly. It's very <laughs> Hitchcockian, you know, and that's 25. That's before Hitchcock came into his own with with The Lodger. So, you know, there was obviously maybe maybe later on Hitchcock might have had a look at, uh, at some of Clarence Brown's films. Um, but Clarence at that time in the 20s was influenced by a lot of German cinema. Yeah, I thought that was that was interesting that you referenced several times that he's paying attention to European art cinema, which I'm sure everyone was to some extent, but you know, that he really seems to be taking notes. And yeah. then later, I mean, Intruder in the Dust and things like that come out of having seen the Italian neorealist films and thinking, why can't we do that in America? 
Yeah, I think he, I think he, first of all, with the, with the German influence, I think a lot of Hollywood directors were, were crazy for the German cinema. Um, and especially when Murnau came to Fox and he set up this amazing um, set for Sunrise and Brown remembers going to the Fox lot and he said to himself, he crawled around the set trying to figure out how they were going to do it. And, you know, that really appealed to the engineer in him, this idea of how do you achieve these elaborate elaborate shots? How do you really play with the image? And he did that very much, Brown did that himself then with films like The Eagle. Um, and he, in terms of then the, the, the other European influence, I think he, he watched a lot of European films because he tended to visit Europe a lot. Um, he, he used to go to Europe every year. He used to stay in Paris every year. Um, he used to meet up with Maurice Turner, but he used to watch a lot of the German and, and French films coming out in the twenties and thirties. And they do have an influence. There's a lot of similarities. If you look at his work, um, between his work and, and European directors, uh, in the 1930s. So films like Night Flight that he made, a very unusual film, very, very kind of almost Russian looking. It's, it's, it's a strange, some strange scenes in it. But then, in, as you said, in the 1940s, then when there was a sense of a movement away from the kind of flabby garishness of Hollywood towards a stripped down aesthetic and real people uh, in Italian cinema. And I think there was a mutual thing. I think that, that that Brown had seen some of the Italian stuff, but not all the Italian stuff would have come to America before, you know, 1949. So he also, you know, it was going back to that idea of going back out and filming on location. And, you know, where else could he film but in Oxford, Mississippi, in Faulkner's hometown? Um, but he really drew from his own memories of the South and growing up in the South. And Intruder in the Dust is so different then if you look at that, it's, it's such a different film from some of the extravaganza that he, he'd been responsible for in the 30s, films like Conquest. Right. Um, but, you know, Intruder is so stripped down, brilliant use of sound, uh, wonderful aesthetic. And yet there's also a lot of expressionistic touches in it, even though it's quite realist. Um, there's expressionist touches in the film that that call back to mind films like The Goose Woman. So there's all this little connections. He did crib from himself, in other words. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, the Intruder in the Dust was really um, acclaimed in Europe in particular. And Paul Rotha, who who was such a, a, a theorist and practitioner of documentary film, actually took the trouble to write to Clarence Brown and say how much he admired this film, that this film was extraordinary for, for a Hollywood film. And here we are, you know, how many years later, 70 years later, and, and people don't really know Intruder in the Dust as well as they should because it is it is an extraordinary, aesthetically, but it's also, you know, politically, it's an extraordinary film, I think. Let's go back to his, his late 20s career. I mean, by this point, he's pretty much established as, you know, a a commercial director of the first order i guess you'd call him uh, someone who can turn out very slick and well-made product i mean you've got valentino in the eagle you've got uh norma talmage and kiki which yeah. is you know which is screwball comedy before screwball comedy exists yeah. really yeah yeah um and then you've got garbo helping shape her image in flesh and the devil which is what like her third u.s film or something something like that early on anyway yeah. um and also uh, Trail of 98, which is another location shot, um, epic thing, yeah. sort of trying to do for the Gold Rush what the Covered Wagon had done for the Pioneers and things like that. So, I mean, big projects, slick projects, uh, major stars, either up and coming or actual. 
Uh, so, you know, li- life is good for Clarence Brown. Yeah, absolutely. He moved from, he'd made the, quite a splash with Universal, uh, with, with Smothering Fires and the Goose Woman. And they was given a contract with jo- Joseph Skank, um, who obviously was married to Norma Talmadge. And he made, at UA, he made um, uh, Kiki and, and The Eagle. And The Eagle is a fantastic film because it's got this art, kind of arty quality to its aesthetic. It's really striking. There's brilliant examples of Brown, the engineer, working things out and influenced by German cinema. And yet it's also highly enjoyable. I think, I mean, I haven't seen all of Valentino's films, but I think it's the best performance he ever did. He's brilliant. He's so self-deprecating and it's such a jolly kind of romp. And it was an important film because for, for Valentino, his career was suffering a little bit because there was some sort of there was a lot of scandal kind of attached to him and there were there was a lot of stuff being said about him as a powder puff and you know he wasn't such a man and he wasn't a big macho guy and here he turned around and instead of being the lounge lizard he made this very self-deprecating kind of romp and he's a real daring do hero but what it also proved to studios was that you could that somebody like brown could keep control over a very big a budget film um, and he could also keep control over a star and deliver something really interesting from the star. And as it happens, Valentino and, and Brown were pretty friendly. They they loved they both loved fast cars, so they kind of bonded on that level. So so he gets to sign after he finishes that film. He goes to, uh, over, uh, having made Kiki as well, which I don't think is his best. To be honest, I'm not sure that Brown is great at comedy. Um, but he goes over to MGM and he signs with MGM. And, you know, it's it's quite a debut to to come up with Flesh and the Devil and really realize what what that studio had when they had bought this Swedish actress that they kind of didn't know what to do with. Uh, the first two films that she made were not you know very successful or satisfactory for herself. Um, and there was a sense, you know, that they, they could do more with her. And he somehow was able to do that. He was able to get her trust treat her with respect um, and also put her with, I mean, obviously the producer put her with uh, John Gilbert. And there was, you know, this is a kind of an intangible element, which is chemistry. You know, how do you, it's hard to quantify. It's hard to predict whether somebody's going to have chemistry, but they certainly had chemistry. Um, And it really secured his future. It was secured uh, Brown's future. Um, And, you know, he went from Flesh and the Devil then to, to making uh, an epic film, which is The Trail of 98, which is is not as successful as he had hoped. This is an example of how, well, while Brown could really be very firm and very much in control of big productions, he lost control of this production. And mm. it just became a complete disaster and, and a mess of a shoot. It's actually not a bad film, but it just didn't turn out the way he had expected. And it did put him off a little bit location shooting because they were shot up in Colorado and it was really difficult. And it was a very controversial shoot because some of the stuntmen were killed. And there was also reports about how they had basically picked up homeless people and put them into the films and then, you know, just let them no safety, nothing just, and then just dump them back on the street. And there was kind of a lot of shadows about. And then the fact was that they didn't really have a good script and the performances were a little bit, yeah, you know, right. kind of mad. Right. Um, and he hated the leading man. So um, it didn't really work out as he'd hoped, but, you know, he makes it back on track again with Garbo then with uh, a woman, a woman of affairs, um, which is a contemporary role for her. And f- based on a really notorious novel, 
the green hat and a lot of countries this is one of the first it wasn't the first time but it was one of the first times that brown ended up kind of having conflicts with uh the censorship um body um which later called the hay you know the hayes code and later called the breen office um so it, it started that which becomes a kind of dominant thing actually in his i mean he's not unique in that dominant thing in his career is, is the tussles with the the censorship uh body which is interesting because I think you don't think of him to the extent that people think of him as being somebody who was looking for sort of sensational material or stuff like that. But he seems to have been very matter of fact about sex and about wanting to portray women as they were in the reality of 1928 or whatever. And so he does kind of come up against the, uh, as you say, against the Hayes office and its other equivalents, you know, f fairly frequently. Yeah, and I mean, I think also with with regard to to a woman of affairs, I guess the other person who was very instr instrumental in that was Irving Polberg, the producer. You know, he was the one who's kind of confronting the the the, the censorship, the censors. Uh, he was kind of doing that. I mean, in terms of of Brown, as much as as you can get to know somebody when you write about him, he was matter of fact, but he wasn't exactly he wasn't a flamboyant type of guy. I mean, he wasn't somebody who was a mad womanizer or anything like that. He wasn't, you know, as not like somebody like Victor Fleming, who's a bit more kind of colorful as a character. You know, he has a, he has a kind of a charisma, I think, and he's known for a lot of romances on set. Whereas Brown really wasn't. I mean, he had a few romances. He didn't like to mix business and pleasure too much, you know. Um, but he was, matter of fact, obviously, and he was working with Garbo. I mean, Garbo herself was an interesting woman, and he was very friendly with Garbo, um, even though, you know, Garbo was reserved and she kept herself to herself. But, he was, you know, he's pragmatic to know. I mean, he married also four times, so he wasn't right. <laughs> entirely a prude or anything. But but he was, yeah, I mean, she's playing, in, in A Woman of Affairs, she's playing a, a liberated woman. And, um, you know, I think Brown is very sensitive to that. And sensitive also, also which I think is brilliant, to the double standards of the day, you know, where a man was allowed to be at the tomcat and a woman would get a reputation. And I think he's throughout his work with Garbo, but also with um, Joan Crawford and indeed earlier with people like uh, Fre Pauline Frederick. He's very sensitive about that. He's, he can see the double standard there. And he's always almost always he takes the women's side, you know, Um he he's he's not and he wouldn't be as famous as somebody like George Cukor for his his skill with actresses. But he has that kind of sensitivity um, and he gets women to trust him. Um, yeah, and he didn't like one thing, I guess you could say, is that also he didn't like gossiping about any of the people he worked with. And I think that won people over people like Garbo, who was pretty suspicious of publicity. The fact that she could trust him meant a lot. I didn't think you cared what happened to me. Anya, dearest, how can you say that? I love you. I love you, Anya. Do you? Don't doubt it. You must never doubt it. I told you that before you went away. You undertook to bear that penalty. You will bear it, as I have had to bear mine. So we get to the sound period. Um, MGM, I think, changes in the in the way that all, many of the studios did. In that, sound 
basically forces new studio practices that kind of bring everything in-house under very strict producer control. And Brown seems to take to that okay. He's able to work in, I guess you would say, a more corporatized environment at MGM and gets one of the major uh, assignments, which is bringing Garbo into the sound era with Anna Christie. Uh, where she takes a very unconventional role in that she, again, I mean, this is almost her goosewoman role. She's playing a tawdry character. Uh, you know, these days, the the lack of makeup and, and the drinking would get her an Oscar. Garbo liked Brown a lot. She liked some of the work she did with him. She didn't like all the stuff that she did with him. Um, but she was trusted, he was trusted and she trusted him. And he was also also trusted by the studio. I mean, it was a huge leap because it took so long for them to make Garbo's sound film because, you know, they kept putting off putting her into a sound production. So she was one of the last, I think, on the lot as a major star to start talking, as it were, on screen. Um, and she had reservations about that role because she felt that it, you know, didn't depict Swedish people very well. She was worried about that. She was also worried about there's some sort of tension between her and Brown on set about how she should pronounce words. And she didn't want to go kind of into a, a kind of a Swedish cook <laughs> delivery. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a little bit of that with the the, the guy who plays her father. Um, so it, it, she was very, very nervous on set and arrived really terrified Um and had to be very much reassured by, and you know, she also not only had Brown as a trusted director, but she also had William Daniels there on set as well, who was the cinematographer who she she adored working with. Um, so there was that element that they they were trust. It was two, you know, two trustworthy people, and you know, there was quite a lot of tussling before the film went into production with the censors to figure out what they could get away with. And remember, this is 1930, so. They kind of got away with probably more than they would have gotten away with, obviously, in 1934 or after that. Um, so there's a lot of suggestion. But, in, in you know, it's gritty, but it's also in kind of good taste. There's not too much tawdriness. But there is that. What's, I think, really coming across more than anything, which is very much O'Neill as well, is that melancholic kind of feeling. And as a, as a film, I think she's very good in it. She's mannered in it, but she's good in it. But... Um, I think Brown probably didn't think it was the best thing he ever did. Uh, he yeah. was still trying to figure out, you know, what, what he was doing with the sound technology. Uh, he didn't, it's interesting as an engineer, he didn't seem to quite grasp sound as fast as some of the other directors. You know, um, if you look at William Wellman, he did it really quickly. He got what sound could do. And it's interesting that when Nana Christie came out, um, some of the, reviews that were positive about they were kind of respectful reviews but some of the moments that were more positively reviewed were ones that were silent moments uh in the film and the kind of building up of atmosphere and the, the foghorn sound and so on um and garbo i think preferred the version that was made the german language version that was made uh, where she was playing opposite salka vertel uh, who later became a friend. But, you know, Brown's version, I think the person who steals the film really is Marie Dresler um, because she's just fantastic as Marty. Um, and she's pure vaudeville, but it just works. Uh, she's so charming. And, you know, as you probably know, Brown went on to make another film with her, um, which was Emma. Uh, just made and she won she was either nominated or she won an oscar for yeah it. she she was nominated for it yeah no i love emma it's it's a powerhouse <laughs> performance from dressler and 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 it was written 
it was written, you know, expressly for her. It was molded for her. But I mean, when I write about it in the book, it's, you know, it, it is a formulaic film in many ways. But what a wonderful celebration, again, of a woman who is older, a woman who isn't conventionally a beautiful, beautiful looking woman. And yet, I think I think Brown and Marie Dresler herself really invest the role with such compassion and humanity. It's it's so touching. I mean, it is sentimental, yeah. But I mean, he's often criticised for his sentimentality. But you know, maybe sentimentality isn't that bad, right? Yeah. Um, hey, you know, I'm all for things that work. When uh, when good actors actors or actresses get you know a nice big steak to chew on, how can you yeah. complain? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, another film, I mean, early in his sound career that I think shows both the virtues and, and his failings at this point is A Free Soul, which is officially a Norma Shearer vehicle, but it became famous for the fact that Lionel Barrymore wins uh, yeah. the Best Actor Oscar for it. And actually, uh, it was before they had invented the Supporting Actor category, which he clearly would have belonged in. He's very much yeah. a secondary character, but he gets a courtroom scene, which... Uh, Brown shoots in in an uninterrupted take. Um, I believe it's cut together from different angles, but it is a continuous delivery, and it just is incredibly forceful. Yeah, I mean, um, A Free Soul is a, is a great risque pre-code film, and it, it is surprisingly risque. And again, if you want to argue for for Brown as some sort of auteur, even though you know he didn't always initiate projects, let's be honest. But, you know, again, it's the unconventional woman and the double standards. And, you know, is she allowed to sleep around and men are, are, are and she's sanctioned for it and men are sleeping around and don't get sanctioned for it. So it kind of plays with those themes again. Um, I mean, the Lionel Barrymore scene that you mentioned is this powerhouse scene and it was shot using multiple cameras. And they said Barrymore later, he won an Oscar and he, he said he should have given it to Clarence Brown, you know, because yeah. it was... <laughs> He was so grateful that he, Brown had figured out that he probably wouldn't be able to deliver this twice. So let's get as many angles as we can and we'll put it together in the, the cutting room. Um, I think, you know, it, it's it's very much a powerhouse. It could be argued it's chewing the scenery. Uh, you know, it is pretty over the top. Uh, it has huge uh, power to it, though. Um, I, I mean, I think he works OK with Norma Shearer. I don't think he were, he he wasn't very keen on Norma Shearer as an actress. He felt that she benefited from being married to Irving Thalberg. They, they didn't really gel as as a director actress. Um, they worked together again in Idiot's Delight and again with with Clark Gable. I mean, I think A Free Soul is very interesting. It's it's really really naughty stuff. Very strange story where the father and daughter's relationship is truly weird. Uh, it's a little bit <laughs> suggestive. Yeah. Um, but I think the fact that it introduced him to Clark Gable, you know, who had been knocking around the studio lots for a few years, but uh, this was really the film as Ace, the gangster, that really set him on the map. And again, it starts another partnership with Bran and he works with Clark Gable, I don't know how many times, eight or nine times uh, throughout his career. And they got on brilliantly offset as well. They really liked each other. Again, he was a guy who loved cars, planes. And of course, that was that was Brown's passion, too. Um, I think I think A Free Soul, though, is a really important film in the pre-code era and, and, and how what it talks about in terms of women and sexuality. And he does a pretty good job. I wouldn't say he's 
the best the best film he made. I think he makes better, more risque films with with Joan Crawford. Actually, I think she's yeah, the, yeah, yeah. No, and I think it's interesting. I mean, you would normally say the next phase of his career is, is working a lot with Joan Crawford, but as you say, a lot of it's also with Gable and two films that the two of them work together. And he's very good. I mean, I, I think they have a somewhat similar appeal in that they're very much you know of the same class as the audience as opposed to someone like Shearer who puts on you know more of the grand lady um, yeah. he's crucial to shaping both their careers I wouldn't say necessarily that he has a great film with either of them but he's mm. essential to getting them to their great films um, and the one I particularly like myself is Possessed which has that famous shot I guess he's uncredited on it but uh has that famous shot where she's watching the train go by and each window is like a little movie of what her life could be if she can get out of this small town. To me, I love, I think that film for me is, is my favorite Crawford film. I, I, and I love Joe Crawford's films and I really admire all her work and I love Mildred Kearse later on and, and, and some of the other films that she made in, in the late 50s. But I love the, I just think that it's such um, an example of how you can take an actor's life story and mold it. And, and it was written by Lenore Coffey, uh, the screenwriter. And she remembers being kind of given the assignment and thinking, oh, God, uh, you know, Crawford's not a great actress. And I'm, what am I going to make out of this? And she she said in the, in her memoirs, she said that it was Brown that, that really sat with her and trying to work through what they could do with this script. And, you know, it really is. It's I think Crawford's fabulous because she so identifies with the role. You know, this is a woman from the literally from the wrong side of the tracks. She works in a paper box factory and she's desperate to get out of a box. Um, yeah. And she wants to be seduced, you know, like a guy says, you know, how do you know, are, are you are you liable to be seduced or something along those lines? And she's quite willing to be seduced yeah. and quite willing to give a, be a gold digger. You know, it's absolutely naked ambition. And as you said, there's this fantastic scene, which was one of the few scenes actually that they shot off the studio lot. They shot that downtown in, in Los Angeles. And it's it really is. It's it's like here it is. It, it fulfills the story purpose of a train comes by. She sees the train. She sees another life and another life, by the way, with the rich and the poor, the people who serve and the people who are served all represented in these little vignettes, as it were, that were each compartment con contains either leisure or work. Um, and and she decides, you know, that that's that's the life for her. But so it functions, you know, even that, that particular scene, it functions on so many levels as it works for the narrative. It, it establishes her desire to leave. It establishes a different life. But it also has this kind of almost meta level where it's talking about cinema and, and the, the lure of cinema and what it promises us and how people can be seduced by the image. Um, and, and that's precisely what happens. The chemistry, again, really central. The chemistry with, with Gable, you know, is, is brilliant. And I think like he had been on the set of Flesh and the Devil, Brown was trying to keep control over the, the off-screen shenanigans between the co-stars. <laughs> Um, uh, in, in Flesh and the Devil, obviously, it's Garbo and Gilbert, and they did fall in love, and they had a relationship, and, and that was. But it was more complicated in the case with Crawford and, and Gable because they were both married, um, so not to each other. <laughs> so uh, he was policing that as well. But um, you know, possessed is this. I think it's it's a really well 
crafted piece of work. It's a very good performance by Crawford. It's it's a beautiful performance by her and a good performance by by Gable. Uh, it's got all the elements that work. And yes, you know, it is formulaic. And, and But that is the best of what I think Brown could often do is he could take something that was formulaic and make it a, a lovely tight piece of work. He sometimes gets a formulaic story and, and makes a bosh of it, frankly, uh, in some of the, some of his films. Um, but in that instance, I think he does really well. Well, give me an example of one where you think uh, he just blew it. Well, he blew, and he, he said it himself, he blew uh, a film called The Sun Daughter, which is atrocious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's, and of course, it stars this big actress, Helen Hayes, a theatre actress, who did not suit this film. And is how could anyone suit this? I mean, it's dry, it's dry, it's dreadful. And poor Bran, he wouldn't even talk about it. He just he was so embarrassed about the film. <laughs> you know, how could anybody make what? I mean, it's a film about you know the Chinatown, and they're all pretending to be Chinese, and oh, it's just. I mean, look, he's a studio director. He's given assignments. He works. Studio directors worked really hard. And they were given a lot of work. And, you know, the minute they finished one film, they were on to the next. And there's a few instances in his work that he, he, you know, some of the films he made with Garbo aren't great. I mean, Romance is not a great film. It's not the best they made. He sometimes goes the other end where it's, you know, formulaic. But it's, again, losing control of a production like Conquest is, is you know, not the best. But he, to be fair to Brown, he was he was grappling with something that already was in trouble before he even got onto the set, you know? Yeah, um, no, I mean, he goes back to working with Garbo at that point. And Anna Karenina is terrific. I mean, it's it's maybe her yeah. best sound film. Conquest, I mean, I don't know. At this point, I'm not sure I can watch anyone playing Napoleon with a straight face, except maybe Albert Dudonet. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's uh, yeah, it just is one of those, you know. Well, you know, you know, Charles Boyer in that is actually the best. Well, himself and, um, oh, God, she, my, my brain's gone. Uh, Maria Ospen. Uspenskaya. You know, yes. <laughs> She's brilliant in it. There's a great scene with them. Um where they're playing cards, I think. And, and that's one of the best scenes in it, and then Garbo's not in it. And I think, you know, it was a mess of a film because of so many screenwriters. There was about 15 or something screenwriters working on the script at one stage. And, you know, Boye did steal the film from her, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, Still, he, it's it's yeah. the same year as History is Made at Night. So, you know, there's it's not going to be Charles Boye's best moment of 1937 in, yeah. in any case. Yeah. Um, you know, another one that to me is kind of a – well, I can think of two back-to-back. Uh, first of all, Of Human Hearts has the worst Abraham Lincoln on screen ever. Uh, <laughs> but it's a beautiful film. That film is that, – that, that's a – that scene where, you know, Abraham Lincoln kind of lectures him to go home to his mammy, you know, uh, it's terrible. And it's John Carradine and it's bizarre and it looks odd and, and, and so on. But up to that point, it actually is a very interesting film. And I think it's very brown as a film in terms of, you know, it's very much like what he likes to do. It's shot on location. It features Walter Houston. I mean, and Beulah Bondi, fantastic actors, always deliver. Um also, that lovely relationship between the children and Jean Reynolds um, is is appearing in the film. And, and you know, I interviewed Jean for, for the book and he remembers with great fondness um, and remembers Brown is very patient and very understanding as a director. Um, and also it features Leatrice um, Fountain, who was uh, John Gilbert's um, right. daughter. Well, she was Gilbert at that stage. She later became Fountain. Um, but she, she's in a, in a role there. And, you know, at one stage she was going to be lined up to be 
Velvet Brown in National Velvet. Oh, huh. But I think I think of Human Hearts, you know, up to that kind of clangor of a, a moment with, when when Abraham Lincoln appears. Um, I think it's a it's a very sensitive film and a beautiful feel for the countryside and and the rural folk. And there's a lovely scene where uh, Walter Houston goes on his he's a he's a, a minister who goes around preaching and. He he meets an old woman and the son is kind of repelled by her because she's kind of dirty and and there's great compassion in the scene where and it's all about humility. I mean, it's actually a very beautiful, slight film, but very beautiful in lots of ways. About without it being preachy, it, it does convey that sense of a compassion for the ordinary people and and you know kindness being something important and. You know, without like Brown could be harsh. He could be difficult to deal with. People had he had many enemies, I'm sure, but he also had a kind of great kindness. And he often, you know, one of his wives um, ended up kind of she was an alcoholic, and even though they were divorced, he looked after her and he paid her bills, and, and you know, he made sure that she got a, a headstone when she died, and paid medical bills when she had an accident, and there was a lot of kind of kindness there that that. Um, I think he had inst- had it instilled in him by his parents, who were very simple people and very much respectful of work and the work ethic. And I think he gets a lot of that actually from I- into his career. You know, this whole idea that he's a studio director, he toes the line and so on. It is to do with the work ethic. I think that it was very strong in him. Yeah, the other one that I think is is just doesn't come off uh, is Idiot's Delight. And I think someone forgot to tell Norma Shearer that it's a comedy. And because I, I can see how Lynn Fontaine might have played it, you know, in more of an ironic way. But but Shearer is there to show off her costumes and her blonde wig and things like that. And it just it just doesn't I, I don't understand her character in the movie. Essentially. Well, I, th- I think I think, first of all, um, that film. It, it was full of compromises because when it was made, obviously, uh, you know, Sherwood was quite a controversial figure and there there was a, a, an anxiety that the film would become a communist film or something like that. And um, it was made at a time when, the, you know, ho- Hollywood and, and America to an extent were still trying to appease Mussolini and so on. So there was a lot of compromises made on the script. And then... Um, Shira was cast, but she was really nervous about the whole thing. She wasn't sure really that she should be in this because she was, she felt she was being, immediately she'd be overshadowed. Before she'd even deliver one line of dialogue, it would be, everybody would say Lynn Fontaine and, and you know, she did this and, and so on. Um, so I think she's terribly uncomfortable. I think she's quite good in the early scenes where yeah. she's not. Yeah, you know she's playing a kind of a a wannabe um, and in in a, in a back a little little backwater town, um, and I, I mean I guess one of the things that she is supposed to be really phony as as a, a character, so I guess she is phony and and she works the phoniness pretty well. Um, again, though, you know Brown didn't like her, didn't like working with her. He, one of the very few times that he criticized an actor later on in his in recollections, it was it was her actually that he that he he never really had any kind of he never displayed much of a, a dislike of actors and actresses, especially actresses. But he did display a bit of a dislike for her and and for her performance. You know, he he kind of didn't think much of it. Um, and again, I think he's possibly a little unfair. It's not a film that I'm 
think comes off very well. I, you know, Gar- Gable kind of is just skating along, I think, and he's not putting too much. I mean, Gable does that though sometimes. And I love Gable, but he's he can be kind of lazy. He, <laughs> he started doing, yeah, Gable number one right here. Yeah. That's what you want. I'll give it to you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so easy for him. You know, he knows he's got charm. He's almost switching it on and off. And uh, it's, you know, it's it's a strange film. It it just didn't come off. And it, they tried to do. They were going to try to make it in Esperanto. <laughs> that didn't work. And it just just didn't come together. And I don't think really Brown. I think Brown lost interest. There was another one that he made just a couple of years after that that he would always rank as being even worse than that, which is. Um, they met in Bombay with with Gable, uh, and he loathed that as well. I'm an old-time telegrapher, one of the last in the world. I'm also night wire chief in this office. I am also a man with memories of many wondrous worlds gone by. The human comedy has the distinction, unique in entertainment history, of being the first motion picture from which a Book of the Month Club selection was written. We've talked a little bit about how his bad films, so, you know, he then gets back on track with films like The Human Comedy and um, uh, obviously the, uh, National Velvet and later on then, of course, The Yearling, which, you know, he has a beautiful streak of films in the 1940s um, that I think Come Live With Me, which is a small film that he made with Hedy Lamarr and, and James Stewart, has its charm. Uh, again, it's kind of formulaic, but there's a there's a lovely um, performance um um, by oh, name? Adeline Walter Reynolds and who was in her 80s I think and she'd been discovered by Brown and she plays the grandma and it is very sentimental and it's kind of a charming story though of, of um, Hedy Lamar as a, as a refugee um, who enters a marriage of convenience so it's kind of you can hear the, the formula already there but there, there are moments of charm um, as she's kind of won over by James Stewart's kind of all shucks persona um, and that kind of starts him on then going back to small towns um, and he goes and he makes the human comedy uh, with Mickey Rooney in 1943. And I think that's the film really that starts him on, a, starts Brown on a good course of, of pretty successful films for the, for the last, for the next few years into the, into 1949, I think up to that, there's a streak of good films that he comes out with. Um, you know, William K. Everson talked in one, probably an American silent film or something about end of the decade moments where the industry sort of takes a leap forward. And he talks about 1939, you know, the late thirties, the late thirties are kind of slick, but a little empty. And then suddenly with the war approaching and all of that, there's kind of a new seriousness of purpose and the movies get markedly better. And yeah. Brown seems to me like someone who really responded to that, getting back to his roots and the location filming in the South and some of them, all those things. I mean, he he really does seem to blossom as a number of filmmakers did in that time. Yeah, I mean, he also had a little bit more control. Actually, one of his best experiences was um, making The Rains Came in, in for Daryl Zanuck, which was one of the only times he ever loaned was loaned out. And he went over to 20th Century Fox and... I think that rev- kind of revitalized him as a director. And after he he did actually say, even though 
Brown was really friendly with um, Louis B. Mayer, you know, and, and a lot of people don't like Brown because they associate him with Louis B. Mayer, and Louis B. Mayer is often very much uh, lampooned as a figure or seen to be this crass um, mogul, even though I think there's a lot more to it. And I think Scott Eyman has done a pretty good job of showing the, the multifaceted nature of, of Louis, Louis B. Mayer and, you know, his, his contribution to American entertainment. But um, I think once Brown came back from working with Zanuck, who was a who was a, you know, a very uh, kind of macho boss, but also a very, very interesting writer who, you know, he had a real interest in he was writing those those gangster films in the early 30s. So he kind of understood the script. And Brown said when he came back from that loan out, you know, that things have to change. He did not want to stay at MGM if he was never going to be able to make films he wanted to make. And so, yeah, he makes a few turkeys still. He makes a few assignments, um, but he starts being a little bit more uh, forthright about arguing for films, you know, that that films that he wants to make. And in, in some ways, he, he continues something that he had tried to do in the 30s, but not as successfully, which was to to for every, you know, formulaic film he made, maybe he could make something a bit more personal. And he gets that a couple of times in the 30s, but not as much as he wants. But I think the 40s begins also a shift in how the studios are operating. And, yeah, as you said, the, the, the marketplace is different, too. I and mean, people aren't going to be fobbed off with frivolous stuff during the war. And, that, you know, when we look at something like the human comedy, which I know is very sentimental, and, and but it has a depth to it um, and it has incredible performances and you know mickey rooney may not be everybody's favorite but if you watch this film you'll see what a skilled actor he is and in his quiet restrained acting which is what brown said brown said you will not do the hamming up mickey rooney stuff for me you will tone it down he wasn't this wasn't the first time he worked with mickey rooney he had worked a couple of times with mickey rooney in the 30s but you know mickey rooney had at this point in his career um you know he was he was kind of dialing in it dialing this in in some ways and he was real going through the motions of the shtick that he had and brown i think one of the compelling aspects of the human comedy is that he gets this amazing performance a lovely quiet performance there's some beautiful scenes between him and frank morgan who later you know who obviously played the wizard of oz um a great character actor lovely scenes between him and also with um butch jenkins the, the child actor that brown discovered and had had cast him in in cast him in um, the Human Comedy, but also later on in National Velvet. Uh, so the Human Comedy, it's a it's a lovely portrait of of again small town America. It ha it does have kind of pretentiousness, and it does have some stuff that's coming from Sarayan, particularly the the, the William Sarayan, who's the writer, um, you know, who who was who liked to have a philosophy that, and, and there was a lot of struggle about the script and. You know, there was a there was a big clash between him and, and Louis B. Mayer because Sarayan wanted to direct the film. And, it you know, there was no way that Louis B. Mayer was giving him to, a big production like this to direct. So Brown got it. Um, but what what emerges is, you know, OK, putting aside the, the kind of cloying elements of sentimentality that you have in the film, you've got a beautiful, poetic vision of 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 America, of a timeless America, but also America that's in the, in the war, on the home front, as it were. Well, we've talked a lot about Intruder in the Dust already as sort of, I mean, it's, it's almost too easy to kind of make it the climax of the Clarence Brown drama here. The Yearling is a film that I think more, more people probably remember than Intruder in the Dust. 
And uh, you mentioned Conquest being a troubled production that he had taken over. The, the Yearling, I didn't realize, had actually started and stopped once. Victor Fleming was going yeah. to make it, and it just fell apart. Well, you know, it's not its not even that he was going to make it. He was making it. Uh, Victor Fleming was making it back in um, 19, 1939, I think, 41, maybe. Let me check that. Um, it had a long kind of troubled... Uh, uh, production history. Uh, Victor Fleming had been assigned to it. He had been working on Gone with the Wind and he had made The Wizard of Oz, so he was pretty exhausted. And they had actually gone to the stage where it had been cast and Spencer Tracy was playing Penny Baxter and um, Anne Rivera was playing Ma Baxter. And they went on location to Florida in 1941 and um started shooting it there and it just it just fell to pieces um victor fleming was actually i think suffering from kind of almost a breakdown he was exhausted he just he was constantly working on huge big productions he was already exhausted and spencer tracy hated it uh hated the the, the location hated the inconvenience of the location you know, he was already kind of a troubled guy and and the, the, what, what they found basically was that they had arrived in a place that was a difficult place to shoot and it was uh, full of logistical problems and also the worst part of it was Victor Fleming and Spencer Tracy had to deal with animals and children which <laughs> as, as I say don't work with either and the guy who was playing the child uh, the child in the film uh, a guy called Gene Ekman by all accounts, was petrified of the whole, uh, the whole, he was a novice and he was petrified of animals and he was also petrified of his director and petrified of, of the very cranky Spencer Tracy. So the film just fell to pieces and a huge amount of money had been put in to raise deer and plant crops and everything else. It fell apart. They brought it back. Victor Fleming, you know, said, that's it. I can't do it. Spencer Tracy said, I don't want to do it. It's then revived again very briefly with King Vidor. And King Vidor basically wasn't warm to the film. He didn't warm to the property. He didn't really, he said, who cares about a guy in his, his pet films? No? I'm not going to watch that for two hours. I'm not going to shoot it either. Uh, so that kind of fell apart. And what happened was that, that, Vic, that, that Sidney Franklin was friendly with Brown. They had worked together on the White Cliffs of Dover. And Brown was interested in the property and said, you know, I've shot on location. I like shooting on location. Generally, I can do a really good job on location. You know, I'll give it a go. And he was very confident about it. And he was also really interested in what he could do with the, the property. And he felt that instead of getting a child actor that was trained in the Hollywood system, he'd get somebody who was new and who was unknown for such a lead role. And so he did a talent search um, and he discovered Claude Jarman. And uh, he was discovered him in a, in, in a school in Nashville. And that really became the ch one of the big challenges of the production was schooling him and, and, and coaxing him into his performance. Um, you know, and he later said that, you know, the performance was was it has a great sense of naturalism about it. But it was, you know, a lot of artifice was used to, to get to those points. But he but Brown and, and the company departed from Florida <laughs> You know, when you think about it, it's a real testament to their endurance that they, they shot for as long as they did in Florida in the summer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, not, and having, you know, kind of this, this, this naive hope that where Victor Fleming had failed, they would succeed. The big problem in Florida was 
nature. <laughs> you know, it was hot, it was humid. There was constant barrage of insects biting everybody. People were getting sick from some of the water was contaminated. And then trying to deal with deer, you know, I mean, you can train animals, you can train dogs, but deer are pretty hard to train. And Brown found it very difficult. But what, you know, and what also was that the, the, the deer, they had to raise a load of different deer for different parts of the film, you know, so that, to show the progression of the of the deer from the phone, you know. So there was a lot to contend with there. So anyway, what happened was also that the the, the footage wasn't coming out very well um, because there was a lot of cloud coverage and there was a lot of smoke. There was there was fires, I think, in the state at that time, you know, wildfires or so. Uh, forest fires and I think um, they just said you know we're wasting all this money shooting and it looks okay and then when we see the rushes it looks like you can't see anything it's muggy and it's smoky and so they brought it back to to um, Culver City he did a bit of location shooting um, in Lake Arrowhead again but they replaced the lead actress um, Jacqueline White with um, with uh, Jane Wyman and there may be a case I don't think there was anything wrong with her performance but I think they had wanted Jane Wyman originally and they couldn't get her because she was filming something else and so she had become available when they got back to California so they basically reshot a lot of the film and used some of the Florida footage but a lot of it was was kind of manufactured as it were in the back lot uh, the Florida locations but some yeah. of the looks is there but you know I went on to be I think it's it's an amazing to me it's an amazing film because people I think remember this film as being you know a kind of sentimental family film and a sweet little boy and a sweet little deer and yet it is it is merciless in terms of its its depiction of death and of nature and how ruthless nature is and how quickly the child must put aside the childish things and that includes his love for an animal, you know, when the animal threatens the family's income, the animal gets shot and, and that's the sacrifice. So I think we often might think of it as a sentimental film. Um, but Brown was very set because the, the novel is pretty merciless about talking about how life and death are linked together in these kinds of worlds and that they're very, there's a very strong link and you can't deny the link and that in order for one person like a human to to achieve a certain identity sometimes something is sacrificed and that can be an animal is involved in the in the sacrifice um and brown fought with sydney franklin sydney franklin wanted i mean i don't want to give away the ending if you haven't seen the ending <laughs> you know he didn't want the ending he wanted a happy ending um you know where the the boy and the deer are happily together and of course, that's not the ending of the novel. And that's the whole point of the novel is it's about you must kill the things you love, you know. Um, and and he, he was Brown was really firm about that. And I, there's lots of correspondence between him and Sidney Franklin where he's saying, absolutely not. We're not changing the ending. And that's that. And we are not going to make Ma Baxter into a soft, pleasing mother. We're going to show her as a woman who's struggling to survive in in the in the impoverished post-Civil War scrubland. Well, yeah, I guess then that's what you'd say is really the case for Clarence Brown. I mean, he was a house director at MGM, but in more than one occasion, when mm. you know it came down to it, he stood firm for making a superior film, making a, a truer film in his mind. And, yeah. uh, you know, that's, that's a pretty good pretty good description to end up with in the end absolutely i mean i think that's why one of the reasons when i started researching the book and 
you know, I wasn't sure because everything I read about him in, in you know, just general histories of Hollywood and so they'd always say he's just a studio director or Andrew Saris wrote in the 1968, you know, that he was he he was kind of maybe a subject for further study. But that's kind of a damning with freight praise. Right. Maybe <laughs> not. And I was surprised at that. I mean, yes, I would be. Um, and the book really does try to trace that, you know, ha- what are the compromises the director has to make to sustain a studio career over five decades? Um, you know, how realistic is the auteur theory? You know, how much can we really subscribe to that when we're working in a, in a studio context but also then how does a director maybe achieve a balancing act between making stuff that he or she really wants to make and fulfilling what the studio wants and I think Brown did a pretty good job I think he got better at it in he, he was good at it in the 20s he got better at it in the 40s in the 30s is a bit more mixed but I still think there's high points with our Wilderness with Anna Karenin, which I think is very underrated, and I think it's a superb film. He, his his career ended in 1953 with a turkey, uh, which was um, uh, the Plymouth, Plymouth Adventure. Adventure. Yes, uh, the Christmas or Thanksgiving turkey. But before that, I think his career had, in in his own way, I think his his whole mentality kind of ended. His career came to an end, I think, really for him with Intruder in the Dust, because that was a film he had to make. You know, and he said that he. This was a film he had to make. He had seen the the race riots in Atlanta in 1906. He had witnessed lynching and he was absolutely haunted by what he saw. And this was a film that he had read the William Faulkner novel. And sometimes, you know, Brown, like a lot of Hollywood directors, hated people calling him intellectual. He used to say, we don't read books or never read anything. You know, he did a bit of that. But he had read the, the in the galleys. He'd read... Um, the William Faulkner novel. And, you know, you wouldn't necessarily think that William Faulkner is a difficult writer and you wouldn't necessarily put the two together, but he had read the novel and he had bought the rights and he'd gone to Louis B. Mayer and said, look, we're friends and I've worked faithfully for you since 1926. And this is the only film I'm ever going to ask you that I have to make. And, you know, Louis B. Mayer didn't particularly want this film to be made and he couldn't understand how a black man could behave in a way which suggested that he had his own sense of his own identity, that he wasn't kowtowing to anyone and that he had charisma. Uh, so Mayer certainly couldn't understand. That didn't fit into what he thought of, of black roles on cinema in cinema. Um, I think Brown, even though Brown didn't particularly care for Dari Sherry, um, I think he, he always was loyal to Louis B. Mayer, but I think Dari Sherry helped him to get Intruder in the Dust made. And, you know, that to me is the great point of his career because it's such a significant film within, you know, social and racial history, but also it's a beautifully conceived film. It's a beautifully executed film. And I don't think you're going to get a, a performance like Juan Hernandez for another 20 years, you know, a, a, a black actor who commands the screen. There's no, there's no apology. There's no, there's no performance of, of kind of um, submission. It's just total charisma, you know, total sense of himself as dominating the frame. Um, and it's an extraordinary, it is an extraordinary film. It's an extraordinary, um, brave film to make, to go to the hometown of William Faulkner and make a film by you know, by a director who was from the south to make a film such as this, I think is is a pretty extraordinary achievement, um, and a really a great example of how sometimes in a career of a studio who director who toes the line a lot of the time, sometimes they can come out with something extraordinary. 
You, young man, tell your uncle I wants to see him. Want to see who? Wants to see a lawyer. Lawyer? He ain't even going to need an undertaker. Lucas, has it ever occurred to you that if you just said Mr. to white people and said it like you meant it, you might not be sitting here now? So I'm to commence now. I can start off by saying Mr. to folks that drags me out of here and builds a fire under me? Why didn't I believe Lucas? Why didn't he trust me as lawyer with the truth? You're a white man. Worse than that, you're a grown white man. Thanks to my guests, Dr. Gwenda Young and to Mac McCormick at University of Kentucky Press. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. This is the last episode for 2018, but I'll be back in the new year with more guests. Be sure to check the show post at nitrateville.com for links to this book and to other books, videos, and more that we've talked about at Nitrateville Radio this year. And be sure to subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Happy Holidays! and talk to you next year. Oh, hello, ladies and gentlemen. First of all, I want to thank you for all the lovely letters you have sent me. And secondly, I want to thank you for all the encouragement you have given me since David Copperfield. It's been a great pleasure and honor to work with Miss Garbo and Mr. March in our new picture, Anna Karenina. And I hope and believe that you will like it just as much as you did David Copperfield. Thank you.